0: There's one other thing we'll get to practice today. Uh, this is something that was practiced at my previous church. We, we haven't done it in my, my three years since I've been here. Um, but I've, I'm in the practice. Every time after I read the scripture text, and uh, elders, I hope this is okay. I'm just kind of winging this. Um, every time I read the scripture text, a- after I read it, I'll, I'll say the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. I would love for you to join me in saying, The word of our God stands forever. Just add some more responsiveness into the service. So you'll have your first time to practice that today. Acts chapter 6. We're working our way through the book of Acts. We saw the last time we were together that there was a division that arose within the early church. It arises between two parties, the, the Hellenists who are Greek-speaking Jews, and then the natives, the local Jews, the Hebrew Jews. And there is a dispute, a complaint that is brought to light by the Greek-speaking Jews that their widows are being neglected, that there is some impartial treatment happening. Um, and, or I guess I should say there's, there's partial treatment the. The Hebrew women in their sight are being treated better than the Greek-speaking widows. And so the apostles respond. We read something amazing. There is a unanimous decision by the early church. Everyone agrees, and they agree that the apostles should not uh, neglect their primary responsibility. The responsibility of uh, ministering the word of God and prayer those are their primary responsibilities, and that this very important job of service should be delegated to others within the early church. And so uh, the apostles put forward a number of seven. And the early church is to choose seven men to serve in this position, to serve as deacons within the early church, and to make sure these widows are cared for. One of those men chosen was Stephen. We met him last week, and we're going to see more of Stephen this week and for the next two or possibly three weeks. I haven't completely mapped it out yet. I don't know how long we're going to take uh, to work our way through Stephen's story, but we'll begin it today. We meet Stephen. We met him earlier when he was... Chosen in the early church, and we, Luke describes him as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Now, you remember, as we've walked our way through the book of Acts, we've seen that every time we read that someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin to talk about Jesus and to tell people about Jesus. It's not quite the charismatic vision that we have today when we think of being filled with the Holy Spirit Every time someone is filled with the Holy Spirit, they're speaking about Jesus. They're giving a reason for the hope within them, and that's something we obviously will see Stephen do. He is a man filled with the Holy Spirit, but he's also a man full of faith. A man full of faith. We're told in Scripture that there are some who have weak faith, and there's some who have strong faith, and... I would like to encourage you here if, if this is you or, or this is how you felt at times or if you have a family member or a loved one who struggles with assurance. Someone who would say, my faith is weak. I want to remind you that weak faith is still saving faith. Weak faith and strong faith are still saving faith. I can't remember who has said this, theologians have repeated this down through church history, but it's something to the effect of our faith can be as thin as a spider's thread. And as long as it's anchored to Jesus Christ, it is saving faith. So that's the case with weak faith and strong faith. But here we're told that Stephen is full of faith. And as I was thinking through this, what does it mean to be full of faith? The answer that I came to in my study is a question of full of faith in who? Ourselves or the Lord Jesus? Matthew Henry hits this note in his commentary. He says that one is full of faith when they are emptied of self And filled with Christ, who is the wisdom and power of God. So, this was a prayer of Stephen. This is a prayer of all believers. It's an acknowledgement saying, God, I am weak, I am feeble, I'm frail, I'm doubting, I'm unfaithful, I'm fickle, I'm prone to wonder. I'm selfish, I'm scared, empty me of myself and fill me with Jesus Christ. Empty me of myself and fill me with Jesus. He is perfect wisdom. He is perfect love. He is ever faithful. He is almighty God. Empty me of myself and fill me with Christ. You know, you wonder how Stephen is able to stand before this crowd that opposed what he was saying and how he would have the ability to remain faithful as they begin to throw stones at his body. He wasn't filled with himself, he was filled with Jesus Christ. There's also this aspect that we're going to see in the story of Stephen, this biblical principle of being faithful in a little he was entrusted with a lot. Think of the parable of the talents where Jesus tells of a master who entrusts his servants with talents and tells them to use them wisely, and then the master returns and finds that one of the servants has doubled the talents that were given, and the master says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, I will set you over much. I don't think there's any doubt or any contention that Stephen was unfaithful in his role serving these widows in the church. And being faithful in a little, he was entrusted with more. He will not only serve the church, caring for the widows, but he will also be an evangelist. He will stand in the synagogue and contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He will then be arrested and stand before the religious officials of his day, and he will preach a sermon. Luke records it for us, and it is actually the longest sermon we have in the book of Acts. I mean, you, you think of the book of Acts, and you have these heavy hitters like Peter and John and Paul, but the longest sermon we have in this entire book comes from Stephen. He's faithful in a little, and he will be entrusted with more. Now, the world would hear me say that and look at his story and say, what are you talking about? How is he being entrusted with more? He's going to be put into the spotlight where he will be slandered and lied about and falsely accused. And finally, he's going to be martyred. He'll be stoned to death. How in the world is that being entrusted with more? He was, as the apostles would say, counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Jesus. He was walking the same path that his master walked. The world would look at this and say, that doesn't seem like he's been entrusted with more. It seems like he's being punished for something. But this is the way of the cross. John Calvin writes in one of his commentaries, he says this, quote, God has so ordered the church from the very beginning that death is the way to life and the cross is the way to victory. How true that is. And we see that in the life of Stephen. He is, trusted, he is entrusted with more. There's also another aspect here we need to remember as we approach the story of Stephen and it's God's ability to take evil things and to use them for his good. Now, when we think of this story, it, of course, was a, an important crisis point in the early church. It had to be heartbreaking for the, the, uh, these brothers and sisters. It grieved them, those who were present uh, at his martyrdom, or those who took care of his body afterwards, it, they had to be horrified and, and appalled. And then there would have been questions like, "Lord, how could one who shone so brightly, how how could someone who was so mightily used have their life snuffed out so quickly?" They might say something like, Stephen died prematurely. Stephen died before his time. How how would you allow that to happen? Hopefully I'll have an answer for you at the end of this sermon. But what I want you to see that with all those different thoughts and emotions floating around in their heads, what we see above all else is that the wicked, barbarous treatment of Stephen does absolutely nothing to slow the spread of the gospel. In fact, it actually accelerates the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church. Our God is sovereign and powerful and wise uh, beyond our measure, and he can take wicked human actions, things done by wicked hearts, things done from wicked motives and wicked intent, and he can use them to accomplish his purposes. Like the words of Joseph near the end of Genesis, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. We see that in the life of Stephen As we get into his story, as we learn more about this man and the way of the cross that he followed, let's uh, pray before before we look at it further. Father God, would you bless the reading of your word? We know that it is breathed out by you, that it is powerful. Would you use it this morning? Speak through it. Speak through me. Your broken, imperfect vessel, Uh, speak through me by the power of your spirit that you might be glorified and your people might be encouraged and strengthened. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read our text, Acts 6, beginning in verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, of the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from uh, uh, Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. When they secretly, uh, then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. But we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us in gazing at him all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel the grass withers and the flowers fade but the word of our god stands forever the first thing we see in this text we see a what well, we see a reasoned defense and then we We'll see a dishonest response, and then we will see a glorious face. And the first thing that we're looking at is this reasoned defense. We see it in first eight. Stephen is present. We're told that he's full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, being full of grace, I was thinking through what this means in their Different things we can take from here. Of course, the first and primary thing is in the New Testament is grace as the unmerited favor, the undeserved, unlimited riches of God that are poured out on the church through Jesus Christ. That the Lord Jesus has come uh, by the will of his Father in heaven to live a perfect life and then take upon himself the sins of of his church, his people, and to die a death on the cross in their place for their sins that the penalty and debt might be paid and he might impute to them when they believe and reach out to him in faith, he would impute to them his perfect righteousness. This grace of God would be poured out onto the church. We know when that happens, it does not stay bottled up within us, but it spreads and it gets on those around us. It's like filling up a bucket with a water hose. It's going to start overflowing and and others are going to see it and experience the grace of God within us. And surely that was the case with Stephen. So you have that specific salvific grace, but there's another aspect here that I think had to play an important role as well. And that's the winsomeness of Stephen. You've heard of someone before who carries themselves with grace, or they carry themselves gracefully. There's this idea of winsomeness that Stephen was attractive in character. That when you looked at who he was, there was this charm, this elegance, this loveliness There was a sweetness to him. Not only was he speaking words of truth, but his character was lovely. I think we all know it's possible to speak the truth, but not have this winsomeness. To not be gracious. We could speak things that are true and not do so with a charm that would draw people in. Sometimes the problem is not what we say, but how we say it. But we see in Stephen that he was full of grace. He's also full of power. We see that he's doing great signs and wonders among the people. And this is the first time we see someone other than the apostles performing signs and wonders. Later, we'll read of Philip performing miracles. We'll read of Paul and Barnabas performing miracles as well. I believe they're able to do this because these individuals here in the apostolic age have been appointed as representatives of the apostles. They're to go out and to evangelize and demonstrate the power of God. And so they're enabled to do signs and wonders. There's also power in this sermon. The, the longest sermon that Luke records for us in the book of Acts. And those words the eloquence, the understanding, the argumentation that did not originate with Stephen. That was the power of God in him, the Holy Spirit speaking through him in that sermon. Then there's also power that enabled him to persevere. So that as Stephen is being falsely accused and uh, uh, falsely accused and And lied about, even as he's receiving stone after stone, not once does he cry out an angry insult. Not once does he speak words of recrimination and point his finger back at them. Not once does he defend himself. The power of God enables him to persevere and to remain firm even when he was taking those lethal blows. This was the power of God that filled him, that enabled him to do the things we will see in his story. We then meet his opposition in verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians... And of the Alexandrians and those from, I mispronounced this word earlier. It's a little difficult. Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. This is his opposition. And notice, this is a Greek-speaking community. These are Jews, but Jews who have come from far off, who have been freed from slavery and now belong to this certain synagogue. And we see they come from Cyrene, which is in North Africa, Alexandria, which is obviously in Egypt, uh, Cilicia, which is in Turkey, as well as Asia, which is in Turkey. And what's interesting about Cilicia is that that's Saul, later known as Paul. That's his home province. That's the, where the province in which Tarsus is located. And these are the ones opposing Stephen's teaching. You know, you think about the vehement reaction that Stephen receives, and you have to wonder, this is pure conjecture. You have to wonder, are, are these foreign Jews more zealous than the locals because they've had to get tougher? You know, they've lived in far-off areas, Northern Africa, Egypt, Turkey, they held to their Judaism and that made them uncommon. It made them the other. It made them stick out. They were, they were different. Maybe they'd paid much on a personal level or a societal level for holding to their religion, and so this made them more ardent and more committed. Even in the same way, it's easier to be a Christian in Mississippi than it is in Seattle or Portland or New York City or, I mean, just outside of the States. It's easier to be a Christian in the United States than it would be in Tunisia, Libya, Morocco, Pakistan. Maybe that hardened them, and maybe that helps us understand the vehemence of their response. Maybe not. But these men had obtained freedom, as had Paul. They were citizens. And as we think about Paul, I keep calling him Paul, we will be introduced to him as Saul. It's very likely he was one of the main adversaries here in the synagogue, arguing with Stephen. He was from Cilicia. He was there at the stoning. He approved of it, perhaps. He was there present. I think he had to be there present. And he was calling into question this interpretation of the Old Testament where Jesus of Nazareth is said to have fulfilled all of the promises of God in the Old Testament. Well, in the course of this debate, we see that those in the synagogue opposing Stephen run into a brick wall They could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. And here again, we are reminded of the power of God working in Stephen. Stephen is an uneducated man. He did not go to college. He did not go to seminary. He had no formal training of any sort. And yet, the smartest, quickest, Most decorated scholars in this synagogue cannot contend with him. Saul of Tarsus cannot contend with him because of the power of God working in Stephen. The Holy Spirit gave him eloquence. He was given understanding, wisdom, a discerning mind, spiritual insight, and they could not handle him. Paul prays a similar prayer in the beginning of the book of Ephesians. He is praying for the Ephesians in chapter 1, and he says, God, give them a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. God, give us a spirit of wisdom. Give us a knowledge of you. What a wonderful prayer for us to remember. That described Stephen. They were unable to contend with him. And so, what's their response? Let's just lie. Let's just lie about him. Let's slander him. We can't defeat his arguments, so let's bear false witness and cut his legs out from underneath him. We see in verse 11, they secretly instigated men who said, we have... Heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So that's the first. Uh, that's the first accusation. He is blaspheming Moses and God. And in a moment, we're going to see just how ironic that charge is. We know they're lying about Stephen it's it's clear in what he's going to say about Moses in the very next chapter. Stephen is not blaspheming Moses, he's not blaspheming God. Maybe he was critiquing a hollow observance to the law of Moses. You know, they they followed the letter of the law but not its spirit. They might have been obedient to Some of the commands, but their heart was far from God, and he called out that hypocrisy, as did Jesus. And maybe they took that as, oh, you're attacking Moses. But the lies work. In verse 12, the people are stirred up. They seize Stephen, bring him before the council. Verse 13, they set up false witnesses. And these witnesses say, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place, And the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So again, he never stops speaking against the temple and the law. He's echoing Jesus saying that he's going to destroy this holy place that's so important to us, the temple, and he's going to change the customs of Moses. You know, threatening the temple. It was a big deal. It was a very holy place to the Jews. It still is today. People accused Jesus of threatening the temple. And this, this whole encounter with Stephen should sound very familiar. It should remind you of something we've seen before in another of Luke's writings. Remember, Acts is volume two, volume one is Luke's gospel. And in his gospel, we see the same court, the same accusations. We see Stephen reflect the same character as Christ. We see the same winsomeness. We see the same graciousness. We see the same ability to teach and to just confound the religious elites of the day. Both are filled with the Spirit. Both are persecuted to death. There are so many similarities here. And they're acknowledging some of those. You're saying the same things Jesus said. Jesus said he would destroy this temple and then in three days he would rebuild it. And that's just ridiculous because this temple took 46 years to build. You're insane to think you can rebuild it in three days. They leveled that charge at Jesus. They leveled it as Stephen as well. And they're completely misunderstanding his teaching. Jesus is not talking about the physical Herodian temple. He's talking about his death and resurrection, that he is the temple. He is the place where justice takes place, where sin is atoned for, where... The mediator stands and represents the people before God and represents God to the people. He is the one who in his death completes and fulfills the the sacrificial system of the temple. And not only that, his body, the church, represent the new temple of God in which his spirit dwells. There's no sacred real estate in biblical Christianity, except for the heart. The heart made new by the Holy Spirit in which he dwells. There's a misunderstanding here. So there was the accusation, you're attacking the temple. You're also disrespecting the law. You're disrespecting the law of Moses. And again, like Jesus, it's possible Stephen was... Attacking some of these extra laws that they'd come up with and placed on top of the law of Moses. Same way Jesus did, but remember Jesus says, I've not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill it. We'll get a better picture of what Stephen means here in chapter 7, but for now just notice that these charges thrown at Stephen were the same charges thrown at Jesus. Then we see something very interesting in verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Everyone's staring at Stephen. I think we all know that prolonged eye contact makes people uncomfortable. You can go into a restaurant, do a social experiment, just stare at Someone. And when they make eye contact at you and look away and then look back and you're still staring at them. If you continue to do it long enough, you're going to get a reaction. You're going to make them uncomfortable. They might get up and leave. They might get hostile and poke their chest out. What are you looking at? Stephen had become the object of their stares. Everyone in this council is glaring at him. Direct eye contact. On Stephen, but there's something very surprising we read here that they see. They begin to see radiance emanating from his face. We're told that he had the face of an angel. Now, our minds might want to know well, what does the face of an angel look like? And I I think that would. Be an unhelpful road for us to go down. It is really, it's not important to ask. What is important here is, again, what we just read about the accusations and the charges made against Stephen. That seems very familiar. What about this? A face like the face of an angel. Does that remind us of something? I hope so, because we spent two years in the book of Exodus. Turn to Exodus 34 with me. Exodus 34, verse 29 uh, 29 through 35. See the similarity here. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain... Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he'd been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them that all the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put a veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. Now how ironic is it? Here is a man in the New Testament church who's being lied about and slandered and he's being accused of blaspheming Moses and God and the law of Moses and the temple. And yet, what is clearly visible on his face? The same marker we see in the life of Moses. Everyone in this temple would have been familiar with Exodus 34, every single one of them. And yet they are so blind in their sin, they miss it. Here is a man who has spent time with God. It's obvious. Here is a man who can spend time with God, and you can see it on his face just like Moses. Here is a man, a messenger from God, bringing his word to his people, and they reject it. Miss it. They accuse him of attacking Moses, and he looks like Moses. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We we've been very blessed uh, in our country and in our state, our city, with the freedom that we have as Christians. We haven't received hostility like. Stephen has, or like other Christians have elsewhere. But we need to acknowledge that the closer we walk in the footsteps of Christ, the more we're going to experience the same hostility. It should not surprise us. Maybe in the South it's more passive-aggressive or kinder, but the hostility will still be there. But we shouldn't be surprised. There's one last thought I had that I don't want to end with. And it's this idea of Stephen's ministry being over so quickly. You know, there's, we only have a couple chapters about Stephen. There's a whole lot we do not know about him. One, one pastor made the comment that Stephen emerges on the stage of redemptive history for a brief period of time. He's like a shining star that just burns brilliantly in the night sky for a brief moment and then goes out. I wish there was more we knew about him. How long was he a Christian? Maybe he was just a Christian for a number of months. Probably just come to embrace the gospel himself. He'd seen all the promises in scripture fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he testifies to that truth, and in a very short period of time, his pilgrim's journey ends. You know, there, there, are, some, there are some pastors kind of in my realm where I see this, and I'm sure it's the, same, it's the same everywhere. You know people like this. There are certain people who you'll think, God must give you 40 hours in every day, because I don't know how you get everything done that I don't know how you accomplish everything you do. I only have 24 hours. It seems like you have 40. There are those who are able to do a lot with the time they have each day. There are also those, like Stephen, who are able to do an incredible amount in a short period of time. You know, we can think, Lord, why would you? He seems so effective. Why would you bring him to yourself? Why would you end his ministry so quickly? And I don't think there's a definite answer we have. God will not answer that question for us, but I think there are implications that we can learn. And there's a reminder here to make the most of the time that we have whether the Lord gives us 20 years or 30 years or 50 years or 70 years, however many years he gives us, we're to make the most of them. Stephen made the most of his time. There's another example I love from church history, a man named David Brainerd. You can purchase his diary, Jonathan Edwards' put it together, and it's a treasure. Uh, David Brainerd was an American missionary. He uh, ministered to the Native Americans uh, in New Jersey, the, the Delaware Indians. And Brainerd is one of these, like Stephen, who was a brilliant star shining in the sky for a brief moment and then goes out. Brainerd died from tuberculosis at the age of 29. I believe he contracted tuberculosis earlier in his life and struggled with it for a number of years, but finally died a very tough death in the home of Jonathan Edwards at the age of 29. I think during that time, he, his, his, his nurse was Jonathan Edwards' daughter. Uh, I think they became engaged during that time. Uh, He died, I believe, in October, and she went on to die in January because she contracted tuberculosis from him in caring for him. But he's another one of these examples. And there's a quote at the beginning of his diary I wanted to read to you that I think describes Stephen's life as well and is a wonderful encouragement for uh, us to remember. Here it is. Quote, Let us remember that Brainerd was no veteran. He died young before he'd completed 30 summers. His course was finished when many of us are still engaged in girding ourselves for the race. He finished in the noblest sense. For if he had tarried through 80 slow-moving years, he could scarcely have bequeathed a more impressive example to the church of Christ. It was as if he compressed into the briefest space that which in other cases is accumulated through the experience of a long, drawn-out life. And they they give this illustration. The author says, when when a dragonfly rends its old husk and and harnesses himself in clear plates of sapphire mail, he has but one or two sunny days over the fields and pastures wet with dew, yet, yet nothing can exceed the marvelous beauty in which he's decked. The flowers of the earth no flowers of the earth have such a blue heightened as the pure color of the metallic shine of the insect's armor. So it sometimes is in the higher sphere. The, complete, the completest spiritual loveliness may be attained in the shortest time, and the stripling may die a hundred years old in character and grace. Brainerd is a conspicuous and inspiring instance of that truth. We look at his life and we look at Stephen's life and we realize how God used them in the time they had. Would that inspire us? That no matter how many years the Lord gives us in his providence, would we make the most of them? I love this quote that Brainerd finished his race while many of us are still Girding ourselves up. We're still stretching and tying our shoes and running to the porta potty and eating bananas, and we're just waiting around to start the race, and he has already finished it. Would we make the most of the time that is giving to us to do the work of the Lord here and now? To speak the truth, be gracious in it. Let's pray. Father God, one note that we just saw over and over again was that everything we see in Stephen was done by your power. His speech, his endurance, his perseverance, everything was done by your power. Father, would you do the same within us? Empty us of self, fill us with Jesus, fill us with grace. Fill us with power and use us, Lord. Use us to make the most of the time that you've given to us. Help us to not be those who say, I'll get to that tomorrow. I'll get to that next month. I'll really pursue holiness next year or at a different stage in life. Father, now, help us as Stephen was a brilliant star shining in the sky for a brief period of time, and as David Brainerd was like a beautiful dragonfly flying over the fields for a short amount of time. Father, would you use us again? Not so that we would receive praise and admiration, but that brothers and sisters in Christ would look to you and be encouraged by your faithfulness. your power to use broken vessels like us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.